Welcome to another episode of the Students Talk Security podcast series. My name is Emily Lugg, and I'm a sophomore studying political science and international security as a Notre Dame International Security Center undergraduate fellow. Today, I have the honor of discussing the vital role targeted sanctions play in U.S. foreign policy with an expert in the field, Notre Dame's own Professor George A. Lopez. George A. Lopez is the Hesburgh Chair in Peace Studies Emeritus at the Kroc Institute, University of Notre Dame. Lopez's research and consultancy work focuses on economic sanctions, human rights, and various aspects in peacebuilding. Since 1992, Lopez has advised various international agencies and governments regarding sanctions issues, ranging from limiting their humanitarian impact to the design of targeted financial sanctions. He has written more than 40 articles and book chapters, as well as authored and edited eight books, often with David Courtright of the Keough School on economic sanctions. He frequently publishes op-eds on economic sanctions. From October 2010 to July 2011, he served on the United Nations Panel of Experts for Monitoring and Implementing U.S. Sanctions on North Korea. From September 2013 to July 2015, he was Vice President at the United States Institute for Peace in Washington, D.C., and in fall 2021, if you are a Notre Dame master's or PhD student who is interested in similar topics, be sure to check out Professor Lopez's course, Coercion and Persuasion, Sanctions, Incentives, and Diplomacy in Global Policy. This course provides a comprehensive overview of the political economy of carrots and sticks as used in theory and practice by the UN, EU, and the US. This course is meant to be a scholar practitioner seminar in which those who are PhD students in any social science department will find research support and themes to explore for publishable articles, especially through the sanctions and security research program. MGA and other master's level students will find the course useful for careers with their own governments, international agencies, or various groups which analyze and advocate against sanctions. Dr. Lopez, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for inviting me, Emily. It's an exciting time to talk about this. Absolutely. So I think we'll just dive right in. And you've clearly had an extensive and impressive career in the field. So what has driven your interest, scholarship, and advocacy in the field of sanctions, as well as in human rights? Well, having been involved in this concern of sanctions as a scholar and a practitioner for 30 years, it's really... Uh, been adjusting to the contours of sanctions of the time. I think what drove it at the start from a scholarly point of view was an interest in global political economy, but also the notion that in the early 90s, the United Nations in a post-Cold War world uh, engaged in this particular technique in Iraq and to deal with an invasion of a country in Yugoslavia to deal with a developing civil war, which turned into a kind of genocide. And then in Haiti with the overthrow of a democratically elected government. And clearly this tool and the use of the United Nations with a strong support and, and leadership of the United States was going to be a tool of the post-Cold War world. And, and that was my first entree. But it was followed soon after as the 90s went on with requests from humanitarian organizations to look at the negative and ongoing impact of sanctions in theaters like Iraq. And so we've always had a, a concern about humanitarian and human rights negative impact, while also appreciating the way that sanctions may help us resolve certain kinds of uh, larger problems like war or nuclear proliferation or terrorism. That's really interesting. 
Well, I know that everybody is very grateful that it is something that you've chosen to do and stick with. Um, so we'll dive right into the basics of sanctions. So imagine you're talking to a complete beginner. Um, how would you explain sanctions and how they have historically fit into the U.S.'s diplomatic toolbox? Sanctions is a tool of what we would call economic statecraft. Uh, foreign aid is a tool of economic statecraft, engaging in trade relations, uh, expanding them or controlling them or narrowing them through tariffs is economic statecraft. Economic sanctions is particularly seen as, and rightly, as a penalizing kind of economic statecraft where a country decides to, if going it alone, as the United States has done sometime, uh, suspend economic relations at varying levels with a country, maybe freeze the assets of that country held in New York banks, maybe expel the diplomats, maybe control the access of flights in and out of our country from that country, maybe suspend the visa rights of even their diplomats or control the amount of places they can uh, operate in New York if they're serving at the UN. So you have what we would call targeted financial sanctions you have trade sanctions, you have travel sanctions and travel bans, and sometimes straight commodity sanctions if a country in particular is a heavy trader in a particular commodity like Iraq or Iran have been with regard to oil. So this variety of types of economic statecraft are meant to be a significant signal, but also a significant constraint on the economy and leaders in order to get them to grope with upfront diplomatically what generated the sanctions. That is, what violation of international law did the country engage in or what practice are the leaders engaging in that might spark uh, this kind of activity. So at the very beginning in August 1990, it was Iraq's invasion of Kuwait where the United States in conjunction with the Security Council decided that invasion of another country is a clear violation of international law. We're going to impose massive trade sanctions on Iraq and freeze its assets in European and U.S. capitals. Uh, just today, um, uh, under discussion in the U.S. Congress, is a set of sanctions to be placed on President Hernandez in Honduras, the Honduras Sanctions Act of 2021, because of demonstrated human rights abuses and corruption in that country. That would uh, end military hardware sales and loan programs to the Honduran military, which has been one of the rights abusers. It would constrain the activity of Honduran diplomats and agents in their travel in the United States, and it would freeze certain kinds of funds until Honduras, uh, if you will, improves and develops a dramatic plan for curtailing corruption. So the wide range of techniques, the wide range of these options for how to deal with violations of international law has been what's fascinated me in, in both theory and practice. Awesome. So clearly there are a wide variety of different sanctions that, you know, U.S. or other bodies could pursue. Um, this is a very open-ended question, but what would your ideal sanction look like? In other words, what's the smartest sanction, one that achieves the goal? That's a great question because I think it's one I often find coming from journalists or policy people as if there were a generalizable answer. And there's not. It depends on 
what's the nature of the violation you're trying to stultify or to uh, penalize in order to begin ongoing diplomatic negotiation to change that behavior. So if we're worried about a country on the verge of producing nuclear or chemical weapons, the kind of sanctions you would have is first, how do we shut down their access to international banking arrangements by which they pay for trade? And the particular trade we want to constrain is everything from sophisticated ball bearings to certain kinds of aluminum casing to gyroscopes, all of which would be involved in the latter case of gyroscopes missile systems, and in the first two goods, the development of centrifuges to allow the production of uh, uranium enrichment. So you'd have their asset freezes uh, on the entire country and on the central bank and constraint of those particular goods. If you were talking about let's say in the case of Burma at the moment, a military coup against a duly elected democratic government, what you wanna do is penalize the ability of the armed forces to control the country. So it would be um, uh, military constraints on, let's say the existing, everything from consultancies to hardware to other kinds of things that we engage in uh, aid programs to the Burmese military. It would be making the political act of a coup personal in the sense that all the existing coup leaders would experience asset travel and other freezes on their person as well as their personal work within the government. And I've been a strong advocate of taking a good look in a situation like a coup at the technology sanctions, the information basis that the regime is using to identify protesters, to shut down the internet, to track their uh, movements because they can have technology that taps into their cell phone locales. Um, I also believe that if you're gonna stifle a coup, you just can't do it by the top 10 generals who are now the Supreme Council controlling the country. What you've gotta do is you've gotta find the enablers of the armed forces, the lieutenants and the captains who run divisions at the local neighborhood level who are abusing people, they've got to be subject to sanction as well in order to show them that there's a penalty for this kind of abusive behavior. That's really interesting. I'd like to dive into the coup example a little bit more. Um, so you speak about targeting neighborhood offenders. How would a sanction effectively target these neighborhood offenders without harming civilians who are as innocent as possible, I guess? Um, in other words, how do you mitigate the humanitarian impact of a sanction like that? No, another good question, Emily. You know, the humanitarian impacts historically of sanctions have occurred because you have not targeted, divided, sectional sanctions, as I was talking about for, let's say, uh, visas, movement, travel, and assets. They occur when you decide that you're going to have uh, maximal trade sanctions along with everything else, which looks at every bit of goods that go into a country somehow contribute to its either human rights abuse capabilities or its development of nuclear weapons or its assistance to terrorism. And one of the things that 
is distinctive about the earlier administration, the Trump administration that's left office, has been their decision to change the way that U.S. sanctioning had been calibrated to differentiate more, whether it was against coups or whether it was against any other um, opponent that they chose to sanction, the, the, the approach of maximum pressure sanction hit sectors like pharmaceutical goods, trade in agricultural products, trade in non-security sector goods, whether it be textiles or industrial goods, because it simply generated revenue back to the country. With that kind of non-discriminatory approach to sanctions, you're going to have immediate reverberations against uh, the civilian population. And we've known for decades that this is a, a backwards way to do things, or at least people of my ilk know it's a backward ways to do things because A, dictators don't just cry uncle because you've squoze them tighter. What they do is they, on the one hand, do what we call a rally around the flag effect and they gather all of their supporters and say, see, we told you the, the United States is out to do us in. So therefore, even though the sanctions hurt, we, we have to endure them. Or what they do is they find ways for the limited ways they can evade the sanctions they make the benefits of that come to their own supporters. So the supporters get the aspirins and the uh, other things from the uh, pharmacy shelf, but the average person doesn't. Now sanctions, not only in theory, but in practice that are not that draconian are to have built into them large clusters of exemptions of certain industries, certainly an exemption on humanitarian goods or food aid, and the traditional practice has been under conditions of national disaster, we suspend sanctions for a period of time. So even at a height of earlier sanctions against Iran, uh, President Obama suspended sanctions on Iran for a while because of an earthquake and the need for earthquake relief and put tons of food supplies on a, on a big cargo set of planes and sent them off to Iran. When Iran requested that the squeezing of their banks that they needed to purchase material goods for their hospitals, but also medical relief for people experiencing COVID-19 in February, March, and April, those exemptions were denied by the United States in an unusual, I think, attack on civilians that's completely counterproductive to whatever the Trump administration was trying to achieve in uh, turning back the centrifuge development of the Iranians. Right. That's really interesting to know. And um, kind of diving into when sanctions go awry, when they either don't have their designated effect, they don't achieve compliance, or they perhaps are too harsh on civilian populations. Um, so one of your major findings from your sanctions research that you've conducted since 2000 is that as a whole, sanctions is successfully achieve compliance roughly only one third of the time. Is this something that policymakers and scholars should be concerned about, or is this actually a positive statistic? Well, you know, again, this is a tough but good question. Um, if if we were playing Major League Baseball and we're being successful getting a hit one third of the time, we'd be multimillionaires because that's considered great success. Uh, I often say to people, compare the success of sanctions 
which you may be seeing as too low, with how well has military intervention worked for the United States or the international community over time? How well has certain other kinds of deep-seated policies work? All of these things are probabilistic. What I think we do know is that if sanctions are to work at all, and if you're going to ever improve their percentage, sanctions are meant, as we say, to not only coerce or enrage the target, but to set an immediate path for diplomatic negotiation with the target. So not only enrage, but engage the target. And when you embark on a policy of maximum pressure until they say uncle, you're going to wait a long time and it's going to be unsuccessful and it's going to have increased cost. And therefore, that contributes to the rating of about a third of the time. If we understand that sanctions are used in different areas, counterterrorism, counter the building of weapons of mass destruction against human rights abusers, uh, then that, that percentage shifts dramatically. We've done an incredible job since 9-11 in shutting down the financial strength of networks of international terrorism. Have we shut down ISIS completely? No, because they learned from Al-Qaeda that you don't hold bank accounts. What you're going to do is you're going to go into areas and rob banks. You're going to hold prominent people hostage and get ransom. And you're going to control oil wells and sell it on the international sanctions invasion market. So ISIS's finance were much more difficult to constrain through sanctions than were Al-Qaeda's, which were held through the normal financial system. So you're sort of one for two there because the other guys also have adaptability in addition to you being adaptable as a sanctions implementer or imposer. Interesting. So pivoting a bit from that, um, as a scholar, as well as a practitioner, who do you think should be responsible for researching and suggesting these sanctions? Should it ideally fall entirely on a government or should third parties, you know, kind of take the burden? Um, how do these third parties fit into the sanctions picture? Well, I'm not interested in censorship in this area. I think <laughs> come one, come all. And I think that's what's happened. Actually, we have everything from UN study committee, committees over time to, to try to improve sanctions. In fact, the way we got to what's called smart or targeted financial sanctions was a major set of international meetings among scholars, bankers, UN diplomats in the late 90s, where we were concerned deeply about the inadvertent and, and continuing impact of trade sanctions as being too much of a sledgehammer on the economy and how do you focus sanctions more? And we were able to develop some of those. So I, I think that's a good example of government study, scholarly study, and independent uh, commerce, banking, and think tanks. Uh, and we have that now. There's ways in which International Crisis Group, uh, Human Rights Watch, just among others, have done some exceptional work on the negative humanitarian impact of sanctions in Cuba, Venezuela, Iran. And that's an important point of leverage for those of us who are kind of scholar practitioners to then to go to governments and say, hey, you've got to be held accountable for this. This technique does not have to ensure this kind of negative impact. You've got to balance and inject more diplomacy and in fact, inject more of the direct opposite of sanctions, incentives. 
you mentioned kindly the course I'm going to teach next semester. It balances sanctions and incentives and sees them as complementary tools in the economic statecraft toolbox. And that's what's going to lead to much more quality research, much more quality dialogue with policy people about refining a technique and not overusing it or abusing it. Fantastic. I think that's a really important lesson to keep in mind as everybody considers the topic of sanctions. Um, so I think we've done a good job of kind of covering the basics. Uh, so I'd like to delve into three different subject areas that have seemed to come up quite frequently in U.S. foreign policy, those being nuclear threats, corruption, and human rights abuses. And we've already touched a bit on the sanctions potential to address nuclear threats, but you know, there's the elephant in the room when you talk about U.S. foreign policy and nuclear threats as they pertain to sanctions, which is the JCPOA. So I think I have a general idea of how you'll answer this based on some of your prior comments. But do you think it was a wise move on behalf of the Trump administration to abandon this agreement in favor of a maximum pressure sanctions policy? And given this history, do you think it would be wise and or even possible for the Biden administration to pursue it again? Thank you. Um, you know, the decision of the Trump administration is actually two or three separate decisions. One is to decide that if you didn't like the JCPOA, what were you going to do with it? And for domestic political reasons, more than anything else, he decided to just end U.S. participation. You had other options there. You had options to suggest that the U.S. was looking strongly at this in the next 18 months. It's time for Iran and the United States to sit down and talk about the future of this agreement. But there was never any systematic approach to dialogue with the Iranians about this, nor was there an attempt to use economic tools like incentivizing that behavior. So if you're not going to engage in dialogue about your role in the agreement and you're going to withdraw, then how are you going to deal with Iran's nuclear temptation, let's say, to increase production. We decided maximum pressure sanctions, which was the second decision. And within a year of that, it was clear that that wasn't working. They had a chance to pivot from that, as many of us were suggesting to them, and chose not but to stay with it, believing that if you only got tougher and tougher, they would scream uncle and you'd have something else. But we don't know what the something else was because the Trump administration was faced with, uh, in a sense, two camps the camp that thought the real advantage of maximum pressure sanctions was actually to change the regime. They cared about the nuclear impact only secondarily. But there was another group who believed very strongly that if you kept on sanctions, you could now get to the beginnings of a new agreement that would address missile systems, security threats in the region, as well as the nuclear dynamic. And they were never able to resolve that tension. So they didn't have a successful policy with regard to the technique. They had a conflicted inner self about what it was really trying to achieve. And they made a faulty decision at the beginning about what the JCPOA could be as a basis for, for negotiating further. I, I don't have any privileged information about where the Biden administration will go. I, I have some confidence that they will restore this, but I think you'll see as you've seen so far, that they're um, rather more patient here than some people would like. Just say we're back in, in the same way you said to Europe, we're back, and then let's go from there. 
but it's a very complicated arrangement uh, when you've withdrawn from this kind of agreement to actually get it right. It doesn't just fit right back in. You've got to have this again as a way in which the dramatic decline in sanctions, which I hope they do and I think is wise to do, can incentivize other kinds of dialogue with the Iranians. And that's where I think they're going. Dialogue, determined focus on the JCPOA as being the the centerpiece or the cornerstone, and also making sure that excessive penalties against the Iranian civil population end. Right. So um, in this topic area, as well as more generally, um, when we talk about sanction-stimulated nuclear reversal, um, your research has shown that it has indeed occurred, but only when imposing states combine sanctions with new security guarantees and then follow these sanctions with economic incentives for announcing their nuclear nuclear materials. Are there any other conditions that you think might increase the likelihood of such a sanction being effective in nuclear reversal? If the regime under question as being targeted is relatively singular, that is, it's the only group in the region aspiring to nuclear weapons or uh, attempting to maintain a small supply of nuclear weapons, then it's going to stay the way the findings are. But if you're talking about a region where you may have, with the building of nuclear weapons by state number one, two or three other states developing weapon systems, then I think you have a chance to talk in terms of regional forum and regional security guarantees. And I think that's the position the United States can and should be in with regard to Iran and the wider Middle East. I mean, it's no secret that the Trump administration gave some advanced opportunities, technologies, and access to Saudi Arabia for the potential development of its own systems. Israel is a well-known nuclear power and has been for decades and is perceived by Iran, has been perceived by other countries as a threat in the region. Egypt seems to manifest certain aspirations. Some say Turkey do, does as well. Well, now you're looking at, a, at what they call a MENA network, Middle East and North Africa, as a whole potential weapon systems, with there being some theorists, actually, uh, who believe that the best stability in the region would be if every country had nuclear weapons. The United States and most folks in the United Nations don't believe that. But if we're going to negotiate with the Iranians for them not developing nuclear weapon systems, which they haven't yet, then we also have to be sure that we're increasing the security of the Iranians in a neighborhood where one large foe has weapons and others may be clandestinely developing. That demands a regional approach. That demands not just incentives and dialogue with one nation, but ultimately with all of them. Makes it very, very different, for example, than the situation in North Korea. Interesting. So we'll stick with the regional focus and pivot a bit to a different topic, that being corruption as a matter of national security and how sanctions can uh, intervene in corruption in the state and regional level. So I think first it's important to uh, establish if corruption should be seen as a matter of national security at all. You know, given that this is the Notre Dame International Security Center, um, we do care a lot about security 
and you know, kleptocratic regimes and corruption on the state and government level isn't necessarily the first thing to spring to the forefront of many people's minds. So in your opinion, do you think policymakers and actors in the field of international security should consider kleptocratic regimes to be major threats to security and global peace? Uh, I think definitely the case. And uh, I can back that up with uh, various classes I teach in peace studies in which I'm very clear with students that uh, corruption and criminal international networks are one of the greatest threats to peace because they prohibit the working of an economic system that leads to fairness and economic justice because they control for their self-interest, which is transnational profit-making, how to maximize where they move and, and, and what they use as options for controlling their own assets which are often counterproductive to what happens in nation states. And since national security should be about national interest security, free of control of transnational actors, I think it should be a major security topic. But we're we're in an interesting time period with regard to this. I'm someone, for example, who doesn't necessarily think that sanctions per se are the solution to corrupt and criminalized regimes. I do think that a greater enforcement of international financial law, money laundering concerns, great intelligence shared in a region about uh, financial networks that are fraudulent and undercutting the trade system, all of that's in everybody's interest. And it doesn't demand a national policy of sanctions. It demands effective intelligence, effective financial crime control, and all states seeing that in their self-interest. Secondly, one of the unfortunate outcomes of non-successful sanctions cases is that the leaders in charge in the sanctioned country have been able to evade sanctions and undercut their pressure by engaging in lots of corruption and lots of connections with international criminal networks that help them market their goods, that help them derive financial benefits from illicit financial operations, and any number of ways in which the sanctions evasion turns out to corrupt a particular economy. So let's say in day one after sanctions end, for whatever reason, you have an economy that's filled with patterns of everything from petty corruption to bribery at the docks, to large-scale corruption to the highest officials in the country who are doing drug running or or uh, trafficking in persons or, or arms or illicit oil, all of that is in place already. And because people are making money on this, that system doesn't end the day that sanctions ends. So the linkage between crime, corruption, and sanctions is one in which we've got a real responsibility to make sure that sanctioned economies that have faced this for a while have international assistance to free them of crime and corruption. So I think it's kind of a a, a dual-sided coin here with sanctions. On the one hand, I'd I'd appeal more to international financial criminal law to do more and have us set that up more than have it be official sanctions. But when we've engaged in official sanctions, we have to be deeply aware of the outcomes. That means for a kleptocratic system that's no, no longer that, but the vestiges of it are all over. Chill. Yeah. That's really interesting. Thank you. Um, 
I would love to continue to delve into the areas of corruption and human rights abuses, particularly because that's something we haven't touched at all yet. But it looks like we are just out of time. So do you have any parting words of advice for scholars and practitioners, um, students of foreign policy, governments? Yeah. (laughs) Sure. Um, The secret to success, however... 30% of the time it may be to sanctions has always been that sanctions is a tool, not a policy. Diplomacy sets the strategic objectives. Diplomacy with what needs to be maximized when sanctions are in place. Diplomacy is what helps you choose between sanctions and incentives for helping to get a state or a cluster of states to behave better in the international system. Where we've gone awry in the United States at various times is where we've forgotten that sanctions is a tool and instead made it the basis of the policy. Don't let that happen. (laughs) All right. Well, Professor Lopez, thank you so much for coming on the show today to share your insights. It was absolutely fantastic. Very enjoyable, Emily. Let's do it again. All right. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in for today's episode of the Students Talk Security Podcast. Be sure to keep an eye out for future episodes and subscribe to the NDISC podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Many thanks to Anika Johnson and Amy Foggerly for making this episode possible. Thank you again. Go Irish! If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.